If you have a Bible with you, turn to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. We'll be looking at the first two verses of Colossians. They make up an introduction to the letter. It's Paul the Apostle introducing himself to the Colossians and then addressing the Colossians. Paul addresses his letters to churches like Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians with more length than we normally address our letters and emails. I don't know about you, but when it's someone I'm writing frequent emails to, I barely do any kind of addressing at all. I pick up in the middle of a sentence, like we've been discussing this all through the day. A lot of times, that, especially on staff, that's what we're doing. We're discussing things throughout the day, and you hardly sign off, and you hardly address it all. Address it at all. Maybe when you write a more formal letter, you address it, Dear so-and-so. Maybe if you're writing a letter to your wife, guys, if it's a romantic letter, you'll go out of your way to address it with a little more, well, clarity, a little more elaboration. You just don't put dear wife, you know, or even her name. You say, dear wife, the one that I love, the one to whom I am one. And, you know, you elaborate on that. In in addressing her, you are describing her, right? It's identity. An introduction is partly about identification. So when we introduce one friend to another, we might help to identify that one person to another. We help locate one person to another on a kind of sociological and cultural map. You list some things that are noteworthy about that person. It's all about something about identity. Now, just that word identity, if we talk about Christian identity this morning, what comes to mind when we talk about identity? I think maybe more and more today, what we hear often with that word identity is the word right next to it, theft, right? Identity, theft goes along today with the word identity. And and so social security numbers are part of our identity, and bank account numbers are part of our identity, and credit card numbers, and online passwords. These are all parts of our identity in that sense. But most of the time we're talking about the identity of our family, the identity of our job. If I said to you, who are you? You, well, you kind of stumble and, and, and fumble through that a little bit. And you, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm, you know. You say your name. You say where you're from. But I said, come on, who are you? What, what are you about? You might give me your education. You might tell me where you worked. You might list your favorite sports, your favorite teams, your favorite recreation. You might say, I play golf or I make baskets or, you know, really you won't say this, but really when, when we're talking about who we are, for some, who we are is wrapped up in our appearance, whether that's clothes, whether that's physique, whether that's uh, beauty. Maybe for you, part of who you are is ethnicity, or maybe it's your money and your possessions. Uh, Maybe who you are is a certain economical stratus, a certain level of income. Maybe for you, your identity is certainly wrapped up in your kids or your grandkids, who they are and what they do and what they've accomplished. Or maybe your identity is wrapped up in your faith, in your ideologies, or your politics. All these things shape our identity. It might even be something that we aren't 
yet we're going to be. If you're a, a serious college student, you might not be all about being a college student. You're looking to the next thing. Being a college student is a means to the end of having a good job, getting that specific job, earning this much money, whatever. But what is it that shapes who you are? I don't know about you, but I tend to pick the ones that I'm better at to, to see as important. You know, I'm, I'm below average height. I'm above average weight. I don't currently exercise much at all. So physique is not something that I think is very important. Conveniently so, right? I mean, there are people who are really, they're into it. I mean, they're really about their muscles and their, you know, fat percentage and all that. Not me. Come on, I'm, I'm better than that. I tend to, to favor these things that I'm actually good at and think that these things are important. And then I tend to view those other things that others have wrapped up in their identity, I view them with indifference or even sometimes contempt. Oh, what's your measuring stick? What's your checklist? What are some few things that are top of the list of who you are that if they were taken, if they were removed, then your identity would be rattled or even shaken or even crushed? Let me give you my conclusion up front. We all want to feel like we're good enough. We all want to feel like we've passed some sort of test. We all want to feel like we're accepted, like we've done good enough, like we've gone far enough. We want to feel justified. The answer in the Bible is that only God can justify us. Only his declaration, only his acceptance is the one that matters. So our measuring sticks, our cultural, sociological, economic, fill in the blank, whatever it is, your measuring sticks of self-identity are arbitrary, they are shaky, they are temporary, and they are insignificant compared with the identity that we all have in Christ if we're his, if we're Christians. Here's my conclusion up front. Our measuring sticks of family and job and education and resume and sports and ethnicity and possessions and money and, and retirement funds and kids and grandkids, ideologies and politics. These things are arbitrary, temporary, shaky and insignificant identity markers compared with the identity that we all share in Christ if we're Christians. Now here's why we're not content with that. Because we share it. We share it. We want to know what thing am I better than? <laughs> what thing am I doing better than others in? And we don't have to be at the 100 percentile, 99 percentile. As long as I'm 80, 85 percent better than most of the people I know in this thing, whatever that thing is. We want to know that we're better. We want to know that this thing we have is different. And we don't kind of like this thing of everyone in the Christian realm, everyone who's saved and in Christ, having all the same gifts. But they're all perfect. So we don't need competition. We don't need to pass a test. Jesus passed the test 
for us. None of those personal identity markers are wrong in themselves. Kids who get good grades, that's not wrong. You know, having a good job, that's not wrong. Having gone to such and such a school, that's not sin. Well, maybe some schools. But they're not wrong in and of themselves. But none of them are ultimate. None of them should be primary identity markers for the Christian who has something so much better, something so much more significant, and so much more secure as Christ. So let me give you a rather painful personal example of this. In 1997, I was halfway through seminary and figuring out what to do after seminary, and I had a couple professors tell me that I should go on and do a a PhD after seminary. So I began to think about that, began to apply to that, applied to one school, Oxford. Uh, At the time, it was the number one theology department in the world. So I did one Hail Mary pass, right? Uh, Normally, graduate students apply to five or six different schools and different levels of schools, so that way you're covered. I didn't, I, mainly because I didn't have time to. So I applied to one school, and I got in. And immediately, I put this in my identity bag with some other things, right? I had some other things, but this, this got to be a prominent section in my identity bag. I mean, Oxford seems, it sounded to me pretty smart, right? And I wasn't normally told that I was smart. I was kind of an average student, didn't read my first book until after high school. And now I'm Ryan Kelly, comma, Oxford student. That sounds pretty impressive, sounds pretty cool. So, you know, you try not to stick it out there. You try not to talk about it too much, but you want people to bring it up. You want people to notice. You want them to be impressed. You want them to stamp approved, good job. Ugh. So you can already hear in the way I'm describing this, that was a a prideful thing for me. So here I was over at Oxford studying. You know, it's it's cool. Yeah, it's old. It it smells like mold everywhere. That's the not cool part. But but I, I knew that I was being prideful about this, and I knew that if I was his, he would not let me get away with this. Something kept telling me, this isn't going to work out. He's not going to let you get away with this. You're going about this all wrong. You started out down a path of seminary, ministry, honoring God, serving him. And and you've made this something about you. And despite the fact that I knew it was wrong, I couldn't really change my attitude about it. And sure enough, the Lord did redirect my plan. Sure enough, the Lord did make it so I couldn't stay. I got a blood disorder while we were back in the States for Christmas one time and had to stay in the States for uh, treatment of this um, possible life-threatening blood disorder. At the same time, we ran out of money. I mean, you you have to have money to go over to Oxford. It's about 50 grand a year to live there and and pay tuition. Um, Well, where am I going to get that kind of money? We went over not knowing how we were going to make it. Uh, And then you get over there and you think, really, how are we going to make it? Um, Maybe I should get a loan. Wait a minute, I'm going into the ministry. Nope, don't do that. You know, don't, don't get a loan for that much money. We'll never be able to pay that back. Uh, so the Lord yanked that out from me. Yanked that out from underneath this bag of identity. In fact, over the next year, I was basically jobless, living with parents, uh, getting treated for this blood disorder. 
I kept looking for a church to pastor. No church would have me. So I went from Oxford University doctoral program to jobless, living with parents, mooching off parents. I was on a, a drug prednisone, a steroid, which you might know makes you very grouchy and you eat a lot. You know, great for the self-esteem, right? It was a very low time, and I'm so thankful that God brought me low to pull that opportunity for pride that apparently I couldn't handle out from underneath me. It's still a problem, by the way. I, <laughs> I told the first service, I, I vowed I wouldn't say it to the second, but let me just go ahead and throw it in here, get it over with. Just the other week, I actually found myself saying to my kids that, um, you know, I, I was pretty good in hockey. I did an Uncle Rico with my kids the other week. <laughs> I, you know, I told them that, you know, I played with some people who are now in the pros. You know, I was like, what? Why did I do that? First of all, I only, w- only played to the, the age of 13. That's not very far. Uh, I played with people who went to the pros. Very big difference. You didn't go to the pros. You couldn't do it much. Uh, no. I, I, it's so pathetic that it's within me to try to put myself out there as something, to get acceptance, to have identity. It, it's so shaky. It's so old, right? I mean, it's oftentimes the thing that we are still living in, like Uncle Rico, are things of 1982 or whatever. Oh. Well, the Apostle Paul not only encourage, encourages a primary identity in Christ in Colossians 1, but elsewhere he discourages a primary identity of anything else. Listen to Philippians 3 before we get to Colossians 1. There Paul lists some personal identity markers and then assesses them. He says in verse 4, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Here's his list. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, I know this isn't your list, but this is Paul's list. This is his commendation list. This is his resume. This is his sociological, cultural, even religious resume. And in his day, among his crowd, it was pretty darn impressive. As to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteous, under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all these things and now count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. He counts them now as rubbish. Now, the Brits use the word rubbish. Oh, rubbish. We we don't use that here in America. So some of your translations don't have rubbish there. They have dung. But I don't use the word dung. I mean, farmers use the word dung. You've got to move that dung from here to there. The Greek word here is a word that has some street value to it. it it's it's a rough word. It's rough around the edges. It's not poop, garbage, something light like that. New Testament scholars say this is crap or worse. I'm not kidding. I can give you references if you want. But here's the point is they say that Paul here is 
is fed up with his own righteousness, is fed up with these accomplishments that he would commend to Christ to be justified by these things. He counts them as crap in comparison with the righteousness that is Christ. He wants to gain Christ and be accepted by God through Christ in every other rival path to him isn't just rubbish or or trash, it's worse. He has a loathing of these things as a competitive identity marker in being accepted with Jesus. So now let's look at Colossians 1, 1 and 2, where Paul introduces the book with seven different identity markers for us. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you in peace from God our Father. So you notice on your sermon notes page the seven different identity markers mentioned for us there in these first two verses. It starts out with one from Paul where he says he's an apostle. Paul's identity was one of being an apostle. Now, don't think super apostle. Don't think that Paul's commending himself here. Yes, apostle here is messenger and not any other kind of simple messenger. This is more capital M messenger, not lowercase m messenger. There's a sense in which every Christian is sent and every Christian is a messenger. But Paul is saying something of being an official messenger. There are only a few ever called to be immediate representatives of Christ or apostles like like Paul was. Uh, He wasn't one of the original 12, but he was an extra one. You could say that Jesus had a baker's dozen of apostles, okay? Paul's that 13th apostle, and they have a unique way of representing Jesus on earth, speaking his words to the church, and yet Paul isn't, as I said, isn't introducing himself with an authority in himself. Instead, he's introducing himself and commending the word of God. So here's the point for us. We're not apostles, right? By introducing himself as an apostle, Paul isn't just talking about his identity. He's also saying something about every Christian's identity, that every Christian is to be a person of the word, of the book, of God's word. How how do I get that? Well, let me show you. As I said, he's not beginning this letter with any kind of way of impressing the Colossians or commending himself. He's He's not telling them his greatest accolade. You know, Philippians 3, I dismissed a bunch of stuff, called them rubbish, but but here I'm gonna let you know I am an apostle. Here he's saying, I'm an apostle in order that he might defend the trustworthiness of his ministry and commend the authority of God's word that's coming through Paul to the Colossians in this case. In fact, when Paul has to defend his apostleship and commend himself to the Corinthians... 2 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12. There, he's almost sheepish. He's almost embarrassed about this reality that he has to defend his apostleship. He's mad at them that he has to defend himself to these other so-called super apostles that were uh, plaguing the church there in Corinth. 
What Paul means by beginning with apostleship is to mean that he is commending the truth of what's to come in this letter. He doesn't come in his own authority. He comes in the authority of Jesus Christ. That's what he means by being an apostle. And he is an apostle by God's will. You see that? An apostle according to God's will, not Paul's will, not Paul's doing. So, he's an apostle. Jesus' words pour through him to the church. So listen up. Listen up. Pay attention. It's God's will that Paul be an apostle and that he write. And it's God's will that you be people of his words. That's our identity. People of the word. Secondly, let's note that Paul says he's an apostle by The will of God. Whatever he is, he is by the will of God. Now we have to ask what's meant by this phrase, the will of God in Scripture. What does Scripture mean when it says the will of God? Well, it can mean a couple different things and then potentially a third. Let me me start with one. It can mean the sovereign will of God, everything that comes to pass. So sometimes Scripture talks about the will of God is that which happens. Daniel 4. Verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. They don't affect God's decision making. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can hold back his hand, none can stop his will, and none can say to him, What are you doing? What are you thinking? None can do that. In Ephesians 1:11, Paul puts it like this that he's working according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works, that's proactive. It's his will, his decision that he does it. And this is over all things, not some things. This is God's sovereign or decreeing will, all that comes to pass. Scripture also talks about a second way in which the will of God is shown forth and described. It's the moral will of God, the, the commands of Scripture, his, what's sometimes called his prescriptive will, what he prescribes for us to do. Like 1 Thessalonians 4. In verse 3, Paul says, This is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Just a chapter later, he talks about the will of God again. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So one way of describing the will of God is what God tells us to do, what the word says we should do. Now, we don't always obey this will of God. We don't always obey it fully, but it's there. It's called the will of God, but it's to be distinguished from his sovereign will, which is everything that will come to pass. Now, there's a third, potentially. Some people talk about a hidden will of God, where God has a plan for each one of our lives, which is the ideal And it has to do with circumstances. It has to do with decision making. So which girl to marry, which house to buy, where to live, what job to take, how many kids to take, how many kids to make, rather. Or you could take them, I guess, but that wouldn't be God's will. Uh, This is described by some as relating to everyday decision making where we test and see, is this God's will for my life or, or is that 
God's will for my life. Now, if you ask Bible teachers who teach this kind of will of God, and you ask them where in the Bible you find this kind of will, most often they'll go to a, a verse in Colossians. Look at it. Colossians three, fifteen. Now, when we get later in the book, we'll spend more time on decision-making. And if verse 15 relates to decision-making, I'll tell you right now, it doesn't. But let me tell you how some would describe verse 15 as it pertains to decision-making. They would say, it says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So they would say, the key words involved here are in your heart, in your emotions... God rules those emotions and either gives you peace or a lack of peace. And this word rule here, they would say, is like an umpire calling balls and strikes, yeses and noes. So the Holy Spirit tells us through our hearts, our our feelings, whether we should do that or not do that. Do this one or, or this one over here. And he'll give us a peace if it's the right one. So you might say... You might hear people say, you might say yourself, well, I just don't have a peace about it. And you might try to ground it in this specific passage. But this, this, this passage here isn't talking about decision-making. Look just at the, the second half of the verse, even. Which indeed you were called in one body. One body is what Paul's talking about in this context of Colossians 3. The peace he's talking about here is not decision making peace, this thing over that thing. He's talking about peace in the unity of the body. There's nothing here about decision making and circumstances and finding the ideal will of God for your lives. I don't think the Bible talks in those terms about the will of God. Not here and not elsewhere. Which means you can have some amount of freedom in what you do. You ask yourself, is this what God prescribes for me? Does this this violate anything in his word about what Christians are to be and and to do? Um, I don't think, I think there are maybe just a few jobs out there that would probably violate God's will, right? Uh, Pimping. Prostitution, drug dealing, uh, those kind of things. Okay, God's will for my life is not to do those. But beyond that, there's some freedom. Now, you have to ask other questions. What's my gifting? What are the opportunities? Where is he opening doors and closing doors? What do friends say? All these are biblical decision-making principles. But Paul here, back to the point is not telling us that he found God's hidden will for his life. In Colossians 1.1, when he says he's an apostle according to the will of God, it wasn't that a still, small voice met him on the road to Damascus. Remember, it was rather rather obvious this was Jesus, and it was glorious light, and a loud voice came to him and said what he would do. It's not that Paul had more peace about being an apostle for Jesus rather than being a persecuting Pharisee. No, that's not the will that Paul's talking about here, the will of God. He's talking about God's sovereign will for his life. It was God's sovereign design to take Paul in, to save him, and to make him a special messenger. Now, 
We may not have been so unmistakably and irresistibly uh, put down a certain path of vocation like Paul was, right? You may not have had a Damascus Road experience to go into taxes. You might not have a Damascus Road experience to go into management. But where you are, in some senses, for now, is God's will. We can say that. We can say that with some certainty. What he has for you right now is his will for you right now. Now, your stinky job may change. But for now, you may have a stinky job, and that is the will of God. Just like Paul can say, by the will of God, I was made an apostle. By the will of God, you are what you are. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That means for me that my suffering is according to God's will, apparently. That doesn't mean I can't pray for it to change. But it means today, this is God's will. What you're currently making may not be what you're going to make five years from now or ten years from now. But I can say with biblical certainty that what you're making right now is God's will for you. You are making what you are according to God's will. Your limitations are according to God's will. Your decision-making has been, even if it's been faulty, has been according to God's will. He has a plan for you, which includes your bad stuff, which includes your hard stuff, which includes the path which you would not have chosen had you been the one who's sovereign. My gifts are according to God's will. My kids are according to God's will. My spouse is according to God's will. I cannot complain about what I am and what I'm not if he's on his throne. Now, partly what that means for me is that I have many friends who are in ministry and they are extremely high octane, high output, very smart, very gifted, needing very little off time, downtime, rest time. They, they seem to be indefatigable. You can't fatigue them. That's what that old word means. I am not one of those. It's taken years for me to realize that I've got one of those wills, one of those desires. You know, it's in my heart to want to be that guy. My body doesn't, doesn't do it, though. I need off time, I need downtime. I need rest. I, I don't think well at these points of the day and after this happens. And it's just funny how God has made us each very different. You can say, well, Ryan, you seem more on than I am or you might be you know, having this gifting and I wish I had that. He's made us all different. He's the potter and we're the clay. So when we ask what's God's will for our lives, we should first think scripture the way it should be, and we should also look at the way it is. Obviously, he has purposes for where I am. So maybe take this assignment home with you. By the will of God, I am fill in the blank. Now, don't just list the good things, the things you like. List the things that are obvious that you wouldn't prefer. By the grace of God, you are what you are. By the will of God, he has certain plans for you, like it or not. Third thing here that Paul talks about is that these Christians in Colossae are saints. They're saints. Now, 
we'll move along faster in the outline here, but it's important, I think, especially in our southwest area of the country here, for us to talk about what saints are and what they're not. Because many of us have a Roman Catholic background, I do, and saints in the Roman Catholic background and the tradition are much different than I think uh, you see here in Colossians 1.1. In the Roman Catholic Church, saints are really super saints. They're those who have been consistently and persistently holy and sacrificial. Then after they die, well, after they've proven themselves, the church decides whether they should be deemed as saints or not. In the New Testament, everyone who's a Christian is a saint. The word saint means holy. And every Christian in the New Testament is called a saint or is holy because it doesn't rest on our performance, our ability, our consistency, our sacrifice. It rests on Christ's ability, his performance, his sacrifice, his consistency, his faithfulness, not my own. We are saints in Christ. So it's a positional sainthood which we see in the Bible. It's a positional holiness we see in the Bible. You see this right in Colossians 1. Look at verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. How? By his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What was my part? In these two verses, doing evil deeds, alienation, hostility. What's his part? He reconciled by his death. I'm holy and blameless by his doing, by his sacrifice, not ultimately by mine. That's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, when he says he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made as our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is a substitute wisdom for us. He is a substitute righteousness for us. He's a substitute holiness for us. Paul's saying the problem is inside and the solution is out there. John Bunyan talks about this positional holiness that's outside of us and in Christ so well. I've used this before, maybe a couple of years ago, but it's worth reminding you of. Listen to this narrative. Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, said, One day as I was passing in the field, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought that I could see Jesus Christ at God's right hand. Yes, There indeed was my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say about me that I did not have righteousness, for it was standing right before him. I also saw that it was not my good feelings that made my righteousness better, and not my bad feelings that could make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever." Now, indeed, the chains fell off my legs, and I was loosened from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away, so that from that time forward, those dreadful scriptures that terrified me about being holy, about being righteous, terrified me no more. I went home rejoicing because of the grace and love of God. 
I think what Bunyan's telling us is that the positional aspect of our sainthood, the positional aspect of our holiness, that we are holy in Christ, gives necessary encouragement to my failures. When I fail, it's not just a lesson of do better, but it's a lesson of hope that it isn't resting on me. It's in Christ. Saints are holy because Christ is holy and they're in Christ. Now, of course, that means that there's a a part of this that bears responsibility. If we are saints and we are called holy, yes, positionally in Christ, I don't want to not be holy in my actions. I want to be what I already am positionally. I want my practice to represent my position. So Paul says in Ephesians 5.8, You once were in darkness, now you're in light. So walk as children of the light. Walk like you are already. Live like you have been assigned in the heavenly realm already. The fourth description Paul gives us is that these, these saints in Colossae are also brothers. Brothers. Now, Ron preached a message on the concept of brothers and sisters about six months ago. You can find it online, uh, an excellent message. He called it the Friends and Family Plan and looked at this theme through the book of Philippians. Listen to that online. If you didn't listen to it, all I'll add to it is this, uh, what Ron, not adding to it even, uh, just describing what Ron said in that message. He said that in ancient Near East culture, the, the relationship of siblings, brothers and sisters, was actually in some ways a higher relationship than that of husbands and wives. Because legally, culturally, and sociologically, you could divorce a spouse. But there was no way you could divorce a brother. You might want to, but you can't divorce a brother. You can't divorce a sister. You share blood And in that sense, when Paul talks about us being brothers, and by extension, sisters in Christ, he's describing us in the family of God, in describing family in terms that is closer knit than our contemporary nuclear family, and is unchangeable, is together, even oftentimes in their culture, living together. What it means for us, even today, is that We as Christians share the same father. We share the same, some of the same family traits. We share the same family business, the same family work. We we have a common goal. We have a common unity. We share the most important thing in common. So that you might have, you know, uh, friends you, you do fantasy football with. You have that in common. You might have some other friends, ladies, maybe over here that you, you do this thing with, right? There's a softball team or uh, there's a, a cooking class or, or it's a Bible study even. You share these things in common. In Christ, we share grace. We share forgiveness. We share a communion with the Heavenly Father, the God of this world. And so there's some responsibility implied in that, that we get with family, that we communicate with family, that we open ourselves up to family and we work with family and work for family, sacrifice for family. And even when we're called to, we forgive family. We need to forgive family because we've been forgiven so much 
from our Father. The fifth phrase here is in Christ at Colossae. In Christ at Colossae. What loaded words these are. I think what Paul means by this is they used to be, before Christ, in Colossae. And they used to be of Colossae. It was not only their residence, but it was their identity. If things were well in Colossae, if things were well in their circumstances, things were well at the market, things were well at the home, things were well with the school, things were well with the mayor or whoever looks over the city, then things were well with those who were in Colossae. But now they are in Christ and at Colossae. You see that? Now their identity is Christ. Their location is Colossae. Christians, Jesus said in John 17, are to be in the world but not of it. We're in it. There's no denying we're in it. We're in Albuquerque. We're in the U.S. of A. But there are many things in it that we are not of. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, Christians are always and unchangeably by faith in Christ. You know why we need this so bad? We need this message, this teaching from Colossians 1 about Christian identity so badly because we're not that awed by any of these realities. I mean, frankly, didn't you think, I mean, I'm I'm preaching on this, and it's hard for me to begin a series with these first two introductory verses. I mean, really, is there enough there for a message? Is there enough there for us to talk about? And and we're used to these phrases. That's part of the problem, right? We We can console ourselves a little bit with the reality that we're used to phrases like in Christ or grace and peace. Or brothers and sisters. Those kind of things. The will of God. But, oh, how we should be awed with the reality that we're in Christ. We're, yes, we're at the U.S. of A. We're at Albuquerque. You are at your work. But you are in Christ. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm proud of our city, right? I mean, I, I was in Florida recently. It's 110% humidity. You swim outdoors everywhere you go through the humidity. Uh, it, it, I was proud of Albuquerque, you know? 330 days of sunshine a year. And, and by the way, it's real sunshine, not cloudy sunshine like you folks in Florida have. I'm proud of Albuquerque. We're kind of, you know, a growing mid-sized city. You, you add up all the people from Santa Fe to Los Lunas. I think it's like a million or something, right? Or Well, that's rounding up from 850,000. But oh, well, let's tell our friends it's a million. We're getting there. We're a big boy city almost. We're proud of our city sometimes, right? And yet, this is not who we are. You say, well, I, I, I'm surely not tempted to make it my identity. Well, some people are. You know, if you're from Manhattan, you, you'd say, this is who I am. I'm a New Yorker. I mean, we don't go around telling people, I'm an Albuquerquean to the core. I don't think. I've never heard that yet. But some people, their identity is their geography. Their identity is this, this political system. Their identity is this degree of education, this job, this team. 
Our identity is in Christ. So now in Christ, we, we've been given new eyes to see this realm and these things for what they are. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher 50 plus years ago in London, said, before we said, isn't this life wonderful? Though everything was going wrong, we buoyed ourselves up. Then the gospel, gospel comes, and it opens up our eyes, and we see things for what they are. Now we see the paint and the powder. I think he means makeup. The paint and the powder. We see it all as a vain show. The gospel comes and opens our eyes to things which we once thought were so thrilling, and we now see to be utterly empty and vain and evil. Let's move on to these last two quickly. We'll put them together, because Paul does. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. People who have already received grace from Jesus, already received the peace as a result from his grace, yet Paul bids more of it. Why? Paul is wishing them a better comprehension of God's peace through the grace. That's through Jesus Christ to the Father. He's wishing them more results of grace, you could say, or living in more of grace, a fuller comprehension, a consistent remembrance of peace with God and the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. I want you to long for this. I want you to long for a more serious experience of grace and peace. Paul begins his letters with grace and peace and usually ends his letters with grace to you. Why would Paul be so consumed with this reality of bidding grace and peace to those who already have grace and peace? Because this is in essence the Christian life. This is communion with him. This is the application of the gospel in our lives. We want to experience more grace and more peace in our lives. I want to hunger for that more. I want to talk about that more than I do. What that means, though, is that Christians are defined by their need. Christians are needy people. They're people who can't find peace from within. They tried, and they've come up short, come up wanting. They know that there's, there has to be a peace that's outside of themselves in Christ. They need grace. They, they don't need help. Help would, would be so much better on our self-esteem, right? Jesus is a help to us, but we sure did a heck of a job. You know, you put in your, your lot, and, and he filled in the rest, We need grace, though. Unmerited favor. We need mercy. We don't need help. We don't need assistance. We don't need a little extra on top. We don't need him to finish it off. We need him to do it. He is our life and our death. He is our righteousness and our substitute payment. He became our judgment so that we wouldn't have that judgment. can't earn that. All we can do is receive it by faith. And we keep needing grace and peace. We keep needing more of it. We need his spirit to apply more of a sense of grace and peace to our hearts than we have. We are a needy people. 
Friend, I think if these seven things are our identity, and we rightly believe that these are better than anything else you'd put in your bag of identity traits of who you are, these things are more secure, more real descriptions of our identity, then I think we will think about these realities more. These descriptions won't be throwaways at the beginning of a letter that don't give us cause for meditation while we get to the real stuff. But we will see phrases like, in Christ is enough to sustain me through this junky day I'm going through, through this trial I'm trying to manage and work out. Think on these realities more than you do and humbly glory in those realities. Glory in them. Oh, not to our glory, but to his glory. Humbly glory in these gifts, in the standing we have in Christ. That we're his, he's our father. That we're in him and that can't change. That he gives us grace and peace and increases the awareness of that all the way through until glory in heaven. Talk about them. Talk much about his grace. Talk much about the new identity we have in Christ. Be quick to speak about these things and not your accolades, not your accomplishments, not who you think you are and might impress others. Think on Christ and speak of him and frequently thank him.